Each year, it is my privilege to produce for you more than 200 Cato Daily podcasts featuring Cato scholars, outside experts, journalists, lawmakers, and others with interesting things to say. And at Cato, we accept no government money. We are entirely funded by private citizens and organizations. That means both Cato and the Cato Daily Podcast are completely dependent on your support. To keep the Cato Daily Podcast strong and growing, we've launched a new podcast sponsor program for this holiday season. Any and all donations to support the podcast are most appreciated, but at the $1,000 level of support, you'll become a Cato patron sponsor, which means you'll receive all the benefits of patron sponsorship. Additionally, unless you object, I'll personally thank you on the podcast. Cato is a 501c3 charitable organization, which means that your gift is tax-deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. To learn more, visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor. That's cato.org slash podcast sponsor. And as always, thank you for listening. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, December 21st, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. When the WannaCry malware attack that devastated thousands of computer systems was halted, fingers had already begun pointing at North Korea. But the exploit the hackers used was one that the National Security Agency had known about for some time and only told Microsoft about it just before the attack went live. But the timing of that kind of new but not really new announcement that North Korea was responsible is at least curious. Cato's Julian Sanchez comments. Can you walk us through the, the details of, of what this attack looked like? And as I recall, it was very uh, strange and, uh, as you note, not particularly sophisticated. Right. So WannaCry was a piece of ransomware that hit uh, hundreds of thousands of computer systems around the world uh, in May of 2017. Uh, effectively, what it would do is exploited uh, a vulnerability in uh, Windows uh, server message block protocol, which is basically just a, a behind-the-scenes protocol that Windows uses to handle printer sharing and file sharing uh, between different computers on the network. Uh, so this worm was able to essentially sneak through uh, a, a gap in that protocol, and when it installed, it would encrypt all the data on someone's hard drive and then try and copy itself to any other vulnerable computers on the network. Uh, and then it would demand a payment of between $300 and $600 uh, paid in Bitcoin in order to decrypt uh, those files. Uh, doesn't seem to have made that much money. I saw an estimate that was around $130,000 were actually paid. Um, and unfortunately, uh, there's no evidence that I can see that anyone ever actually got their files back as a result of having paid. So this doesn't really seem to have been a, uh, a money-making enterprise, um, though it did cost, by most estimates, uh, billions of dollars in damage uh, just as a result of, of data being lost or systems having to be uh, essentially wiped um, and, and replaced. In the case of the British National Health Service, this is a, a you know a very important system to the health of, of people in in Great Britain. So, affecting a system like that could have life or death consequences, depending on on how it uh, how much damage it does. Certainly, uh, you know, at least at the very least, uh, you know, delay of, of treatment just as a result of the the confusion imposed. You would hope uh, a critical system like healthcare would uh, have some kind of fallback in the event of some kind of event like this, but you would also hope that a, a healthcare system would not be using uh, unpatched 
software. Uh, this was this was uh, a vulnerability that that Microsoft had had patched in in March. So um, it was just uh, uh, those systems that had not been updated by May, uh, which is quite a lot, as it turns out, uh, that were exploitable. But uh, certainly, you would want, you would hope that uh, something that's running uh, with people's healthcare data. Uh, would uh, you know, install security patches you know, essentially the second they're released. So the the per, the person who stopped this was a himself a hacker who uh, got a look at the code and he, he secured or put a web page up at a particular domain name that stopped the attack. That's right. Uh, there was what was called a kill switch. Uh, you know, the problem with, with worms is that they tend to spread out of control. I mean, that's what a worm is. It's essentially a self-replicating program. Um, maybe the, the first and most famous internet worm in the early 80s uh, sort of shut down a lot of computer systems um, quite by accident. It had not been intended as uh, something destructive. It was more of a kind of prank or experiment by a, a young hacker that, that spun out of control. So in this case, the designer which uh, consensus seems to be is, is the North Korean Lazarus group uh, had created a kill switch. So before the worm encrypts your data or tries to copy itself, it would check whether a particular website was up. And then if it found that uh, the website had been, had been activated, uh, it would shut itself down instead of encrypting and, and, and replicating. And then he himself found him. He himself was put, got caught in in something for uh, having uh, engaged in some illegal activity as well. That's right. I think he was accused. Of, I don't remember the details exactly, but of, of essentially uh, 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 providing uh, services to bad actors. Um, this is one of the, the sort of difficulties of working in computer security: is that the um, the folks you need to uh, to essentially to catch a thief, often themselves have uh, dubious ties, but also, you know, more sympathetically, let's say, um, the kind of work you need to do to be able to be effective as a security practitioner is often uh, uh, on the borderline. And so there's a lot of security reachers, for example, have complained that the way our um, federal uh, computer fraud and computer intrusion statutes are, are written um, makes it difficult to, for them to do the kind of things they need to do uh, because it may technically fall afoul of the uh, run afoul of the law even if their um, their aim is to uh, to help improve security and not to cause any damage the United States and uh, Great Britain both say that this was a this was a group that has ties to North Korea. Um, and as you say, we don't have any particular reason to doubt that. Uh, um, but why now might be an appropriate question. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing here is that almost immediately there were attributions uh, publicly by various private entities to North Korea. Um, there were, uh, I think, in, in October, the UK uh, made statements to the same effect. Um, so this is something that had been sort of unofficially reporting the Washington Post and back in June said that the U.S. government had concluded it was North Korea. So uh, the timing of, of announcing this now um, seems certainly not, not to be uh, the fact that new evidence has come to light and they have just concluded uh, that North Korea was responsible, but, uh, but part of the sort of ongoing uh, – um, I guess, diplomatic uh, attempt to play hardball with North Korea, so connected to um, you know, the, the full range of tensions between the U.S. and North Korea. And the, the lesson here as a matter of network and computer security is just what, gird your loins? 
Well, uh, the the personal level uh, lesson, I think, is just update uh, update your system as soon as any kind of security update is released. Again, this is not a, a, a huge span of time, but this is something that Microsoft patched after being tipped off by NSA um, back in March. Uh, and, uh, and so... You had to have a system that hadn't been updated, hadn't installed the security update for essentially a couple months um, uh, to to be vulnerable. The macro takeaway, of course, is that uh, NSA uh, should should rethink uh, how it stockpiles vulnerabilities. I mean, the interesting thing about about this attribution is this was announced uh, essentially by an op-ed in the um, in the Wall Street Journal by uh, one of the administration's cybersecurity advisors. And nowhere in this rather long uh, article does it even mention that the vulnerability in question called Eternal Blue, which has been used in both WannaCry and a later piece of malware called NotPetya that targeted systems in Ukraine and was probably uh, launched by Russia. Um, this Eternal Blue vulnerability uh, is something that got into the wild because the NSA had for five years been sitting on it and using it for their own purposes to uh, break into foreign systems for intelligence purposes. And we know there was a group, again, probably Russian, called the Shadow Brokers uh, that uh, the previous summer had released somewhat embarrassingly a, a stockpile of stolen NSA vulnerabilities. Uh, and then so the timeline here is somewhere around January or February, uh, NSA uh, essentially decides it's finally time to tell Microsoft about this Windows vulnerability they've been using for some time. Um, Microsoft sort of surprisingly, at least at the time, cancels its its uh, February security updates and then in March releases a bulletin detailing this WannaCry uh, vulnerability. And then shortly after that in April, presumably, you know, uh, on the on the theory that well okay they're, they're starting to patch it so this vulnerability is of no use to hackers anymore unless it's released into the wild now it's it's sort of safe to burn it it's it's not that valuable to keep it for them anymore uh, shadow brokers published another batch of uh, vulnerabilities one of these was eternal blue and then you know essentially within a month we're seeing the sort of weapon and not just the vulnerability but the NSA sort of weaponized version of it. Um, and then within you know weeks, essentially, we are seeing uh, versions of that uh, weaponized NSA code uh, adapted into malware that is affecting uh, computers around the world. Um, now, you know, there's a sense in which this is not their you know their, their fault and that they didn't intend for that to happen, but um, but I think it, it it does sort of suggest that this is something that could have been avoided if. Um, this had been one, if of course, if they had been better at securing their own tools. But two, if if uh, this is something that they had notified Microsoft about much much earlier in the process. I mean, maybe they could have kept it for a few months to install spyware on some very high value systems, and then uh, told Microsoft there would have been uh, a lot less of a window for that to leak out and for uh, and for bad actors to exploit uh, that. Um, you know, but they would have, they would have, uh, even if it were independently discovered later, found that by then uh, the vulnerability had been patched. And it, the NSA, to the extent that they are willing to tell uh, 
large companies or even smaller companies about vulnerabilities in their software, you, you seem to be indicating that they, in general, would only do so if uh, somebody else got the exploit or if they were essentially done using that exploit. You know, I mean, so they actually do tell companies a fair amount. So there's something called the vulnerabilities equities process, which is this this process they use to determine when they discover a vulnerability, um, do they keep it for themselves and use it to, to hack or do they share it with the developer so it can be closed? Uh, and there's a lot, a lot of different factors that go into that and they are supposedly trying to be more transparent about that process. And they say that already something like 90% of the things they discover, they pass on you know, either directly or indirectly to the developers. But the trouble is um, 90% is not a very useful number. The question is what what's the 90% they're sharing? Probably stuff that's not of any use to them. Um, it's just, well, this could you know, cause some, some harm, but it's not very uh, helpful to someone who's trying to break into a system and steal data. Um, the stuff that is high severity, uh, they're, of course, much more tempted to keep. And, you know, at some level, I, you know, I, I don't blame them. I don't, I, don't, uh, I don't think that they should instantly necessarily hand over every single thing they discover. It makes sense if they want to briefly um, use something for, for some high-value legitimate intelligence purpose. Um, the problem is when you're talking about years, the longer – something like that is kept under wraps, the higher the probability is either that it's going to be independently discovered or that, uh, uh, or that uh, as in this case, as it turns out, um, your own tools will end up in the wild. Julian Sanchez is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. This holiday season, consider supporting the Cato podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute by visiting cato.org slash podcast sponsor and learn more of the benefits of sponsorship. That's cato.org slash podcast sponsor.